This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today our show is completely handcrafted. You're, you're really going to say that? Uh, Paul doesn't like the word handcrafted. Oh, man. And apparently neither do some other folks. <laughs> I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and today we're going to tell you about some lawsuits over Paul's favorite word, handcrafted, and about a Harris poll that says, sorry, Paul, that word sells products. <laughs> a listener asked, how could a $40 wine be considered inexpensive? And we have listener questions about a couple of well-intentioned sommeliers. Plus, as usual, we'll make fun of wine snobs. Stay with us. You're listening to Bottle Talk with Brick and Paul, and today we're going to annoy Paul just a little. Uh, what, today? Like it's different from other weeks? And the week before, and the week before. Every yeah. week we love, we love annoying Paul. <laughs> all right, seriously, Paul is actually a pretty easygoing guy. I mean, after all, he does a radio show with me. <laughs> but don't say the word handcrafted around him or his eyes bug out. Yeah, well, it's just a word that has no meaning. And, and yet every winery says that they handcraft their wines as if somehow... The other wines or the wines of other people are not crafted by hand. They're crafted by robots or, anyway, Ooh, a meaningless I, term. I want a robot you wine. You want a robot-crafted wine? Yes, I do. Mechanized Just before wine. they take over the planet, I want to drink their wine. <laughs> All right, well, uh, we're going to tell you why you are so unhappy about that in a moment. But first, you can probably imagine Paul's joy that uh, some people sued. Some consumers sued some beverage companies. None of them are wineries, but they're be beverage companies right. over using the term handcrafted. So here's here's some of the latest lawsuit news oh, yeah. in the world. Leave it to us to know about lawsuits. Yes, news. yes. We are waiting for them to come piling come after in us. any day. So Jim Beam's White Label Bourbon was sued by a man in California. He said he violated California's false advertising and unfair competition laws. He said they intentionally misrepresented himself, and he said he's not giving himself much credit. He said he was enticed into buying a bottle of that pr at a premium price because it said handcrafted on the label. Handcrafted, after all, is associated, he says, with high-end products. Yes. The guy claimed, <laughs> I like this, the Jim Beam bourbon is actually made using a me mechanized or automated process requiring little human involvement. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the I like this so, part. You will like this part. Yeah, right? I love this part. U.S. District Judge in San Diego said, and I'm going to quote now: "A reasonable customer wouldn't interpret the word handcrafted on a bourbon bottle to mean that the product is literally created by a hand process rather than a machine. It isn't a reasonably interpreted. This is the judge. I'm sorry. He says it isn't reasonably interpreted as a statement of fact. There you go. So in fact, handcrafted on a bottle doesn't mean. There's one thing that the judge certified it did not mean. He doesn't expect people to think it's to believe handcrafted. It means that he believes that no reasonable consumer would con would manage to conclude that, that something that said handcrafted on it was handcrafted. Yes, yes. don't you love and that? And there, I I am vindicated. Paul, it's, I am vindicated. It's it's why I wear a t-shirt that says I am tall. <laughs> <laughs> Because when they read it, they know, right? They, uh, I expect, I expect no reasonable, <laughs> no reasonable consumer. Yes, we don't expect that. <laughs> All right. Well, 
they weren't the only ones, uh, and that and there are other lawsuits. Although in one case, actually, there it's um, slightly different. So uh, one was against Maker's Mark in right. Maker, and this was just, it was um, they had actually a couple lawsuits, two against Maker's Mark, and they were dismissed for almost exactly the same reason. Right now, Maker's Mark is the one that has the wax dribbling right. down the top that looks as if it were hand. Applied to the yeah. And it says so on the not. label. Yeah. Um, another was, and this one's a little more complicated because at one point it sort of was, which is Tito's Handmade Vodka. And okay. they were sued two different lawsuits in California and Florida. You know, a lot of these lawsuits come from California and Florida. And and um, it's, it's it's entirely possible that we are the two states with the dumbest consumers. I don't know, <laughs> but where they, they, but in any case, always the, a possibility. So uh, the lawsuit claimed that in one of the suits that the vodka is made via a highly mechanized process, which is devoid of human hands. No, no, the no. Thing, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say because I do have to say something about how the way all distilled products are made. Yes, and I'm going to talk about Tito's in a second because they have. But but this is the part that I love in defending itself. Yes. A company says the label could deceive no reasonable consumer. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> going to believe the stuff we put on our label. That's Come on, exactly a right. vodka named Tito's. What do you expect? <laughs> yes. Now, the point, um, um, one of the points about all of this is that any distillation process is basically boiling a liquid in a still. In a still, a metal container, and and actually boiling is a is a is a complicated term because you're actually heating it above 185 degrees, but not 212, and at that in those intermediate points, the alcohol boils off and the water does not. Right, so the alcohol boils at a lower temperature than the alcohol, and then the water. And then if you cool the steam that comes out of this, you get the distillate, which becomes the vodka or the bourbon or whatever it is. I don't think anybody's sticking their hands in the boiling water. They're mixing it around. I yeah. don't. I yeah. mean, I don't know where the hand comes into this. The only time that the hand comes into this is when you start smelling the stuff that comes out the far end and making the decisions about the blend. And I'm willing to bet that cannot and is not done by machine. Well, the the, the thing is too about Tito's, and um, it would get, it's is about as close to handmade as it as you could get. In that there was a guy there, an actual guy there. Tito Beverage is his name, but not spelled beverage, but close. Yeah, um, and he was. At, at, in the 90s when he started, I think it was 97 when hmm. he started, was uh, he pasted the labels on. He put he put every cap on every bottle. Wow. Uh, got himself a case of uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. From <laughs> putting the caps on yeah. the bottles. Good. Um, yeah. and, and he was cranking out like 65 cases a day. And now they're making 850 gallons uh, a year. 850,000 gallons a year. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, and so yeah. he's not using this. He used this one 16-gallon pot Don't still. Don't you think at this point Tito deserves to get out? Uh, uh, break though. Do you, do you still want him to be putting each cap on the I bottle have, by I hand? I actually have no problem with the handmade vodka on his. I really don't uh-huh. for, the, for that reason alone, because hmm. the story, because of the story behind it. You because know? of the fact that he actually can this no longer was, use his hands. Yeah, this, this was a guy who's with... sleeping on the floor next to his still oh, for years, okay. and yeah. he's been successful, and it's a very popular vodka. Uh, and so, you know, uh, that lawsuit is still um, pending. Still pending. It's it's you know these things take a while. There was one lawsuit about. Um, Labels and and weird advertising um, that is not actually about handcrafted, but um, it did cause some issues, which was Templeton Rye. And I actually am a fan of Templeton Rye, I have to say. Mm. It had always advertised itself as an Iowa-made Prohibition-style product. I'm not even sure what prohibition style means, but it's fun. Um, and it, but it <laughs> turns out that they were style. also sourcing some of its rye rye whiskey from an Indiana contract distiller. No. 
They so, were bootlegging. They were bootlegging. They were bootlegging well, Indiana rye whiskey. Come on, that's prohibition uh, style. Exactly if anything is prohibition right. style. That's exactly right. But <laughs> Temple, the, that lawsuit is not has not been settled, although there have been talks. And Templeton has announced that it would update its label to add that there's an Indiana distilled whiskey. That they're now. bootlegging Indiana whiskey into their Iowa whiskey to make it true prohibition style. Yeah, and I think they got yeah. their bases covered at this point. I think so too. And all they really need to do is just have a shootout with the coppers, and they'd be in fine. <laughs> Shape. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, oh man! So, so uh, as silly as all that might sound, it turns out that those words do matter to the consumers. To Har- some of them. Harris did a did a, a study um, yeah. on words. The Harris words research. That, yeah, Harris Harris poll. They, they're one of the big boys, and they um, they tested a whole bunch of words on consumers uh, about what. What implied yeah. quality? Yeah. Paul, which one do you think won? I don't want to say it out loud. You got to say it. <laughs> Handcraft. You got it. That's correct, Amundo, <laughs> my friend. So here are the numbers. Oh, <laughs> oh man, this hurts. Handcrafted was nearly six in ten adults, fifty nine percent. You know, so could you could we, also could we, argue before we tens. get into this discussion, could we just quote P. T. Barnum one more time? <laughs> no one ever lost money underestimating the taste of the American public. Yeah, you know, the intelligence. The intelligence of the American public. That's how we stay on the air, Paul. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> I'll shut up now. <laughs> but nearly six in ten. So fifty nine percent. We'll call that you know, six in 60% ten. Sixty percent of yeah. adults. So forty percent are on your most side. Mo- well, it's not no, so it's, much right. It, it was the most thing. The thing that, that yeah, it the, wasn't that the forty percent hated it, but sixty percent said that was their number one word that yep. told them that it was a really good product was yep. that it was handcrafted. Yeah. Well, we handcraft this radio show every week. Yes, we are. Yes, We're, and we are also both art, artisanal, artisanal and custom. <laughs> yes, we are. Because and all, and all natural. Yes, <laughs> we are, and that for sure, because that came second. Um, uh, artisanal and artisan and custom all clocked in at forty six percent, so nearly half. Right. Um, craft was another one, although we're going to talk okay. about that in a second because craft has some limits. Yep. Um, and limited edition is 41%. 41. And small batch. And this is a word that pops up a lot, and I've even heard wineries use this. makes you unhappy, this. doesn't it, Rick? It does Being because I am person. a small batch myself. <laughs> yeah. It's just 31% said that implied. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and they, uh, this, this was people that thought that it—you're uh, going like, to like this even less—that thought that it implied something good. In terms of affecting their actual buying choices, Yep. once again, handmade handcrafting shows the strongest potential. Roughly half, 48%, said it had some, either some or a great deal of influence on their decision. Yeah. So uh, it's, uh, it's you know this is we, I've seen these studies before. Right? I mean it, it's one of the reasons I I get on my soapbox about this is because the the word that Americans find most influential on a wine label turns out to have no meaning whatsoever. Yeah. Well, the other one's minerality. Well, and the other one actually is reserve. Yeah, reserve. Right, right. Which has no reserve meaning has no meaning either technically. Yeah. Although in well, that's another comp- that's that we really do not talk about. Not reserve. in the U.S. Yes, not in the U.S. And I, but it does. But it actually does often, really does mean something, even though it doesn't legally mean something, which many wineries do make their best wines or their better and wines. Some don't. And some don't. No, many don't. And certainly a lot of those $4 wines all say reserve on them because this you can't show. Because can. This is a reserve show. This is show. a reserve show. It is definitely. It is a handcrafted reserve show. <laughs> All right. Here's the other thing, though the 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 words uh, whether they went across things like you know all spirits, so beer, spirits, wine. Right. Um, the word that traveled the least well was craft. 
Hmm. And it's funny because you hear now and then you hear Craft beers all the time. Yeah, but you hear wine people talking about you know some wine people saying you know we need to do something about this craft beer rave, uh, which right. they don't. It really is only good for them. But right. and by calling ourselves craft wine, but as it turns out, it uh, it is not as they say portable. Right. So so about half, fifty two percent of Americans uh, drinking age Americans said beer is an appropriate fit for the word craft, and it makes them think better of it. Right. Only one quarter said that this, they thought the same about spirits, and yep. only 20%, only one in five, said yep. it fits wine, which well, means that, that, that four out of five will think you're a knucklehead if you put that on your bottle. Well, here, but it's, it, to me, it's easy to understand because beer, you, you combine the ingredients, but you can get the ingredients. I mean, you buy the ingredients. You, know, you buy the hops. You yeah. buy the grain, that stuff. Sure. And you, you do the stuff. You craft it. With great. Do you handcraft it? Yeah, you do not handcraft anything. But with grapes, there's only one time that you have to make the wine exactly when the grapes are ripe. Oh, it's yeah. not as if you are buying things and putting things together the way you want. To a certain extent, you are at the mercy of Mother Nature. I mean, yes. Michael Weiss, our winemaking friend, always says he gets paid to really make one decision every year, which is when do you pick the grapes? Right. And if you pick the grapes right, then you make great wine. It's, it's so I can understand why they would say, what do you mean handcrafting? The, it's the, the grapes that are making the wine. And you hear winemakers say this, that the wines are made in the vineyard, not in the winery, et cetera. Nobody says that the beer is made in the hop yard. Yeah. Well, and in beard, too, there is um, because of craft brew, which is actually a phrase. Right. And we've talked about this and we did a show on that. Um, and uh, and I've actually done some writing about this because everybody wants me to write about beer because beer's so popular. Right. But what, what, what it says, it's really a matter of size in lots of ways because there's all these it's little guys. They're all regional. They're all <laughs> yeah, always, right? But there's, <laughs> every region has its own bunch of little small breweries right. as opposed to the big boys, the bushes, yep. and, um, I mean the buds and the, and the yep. millers. And, and there is a, there's a demonstrable difference if nothing else in in where they come from, and people like things to be local. And so it does apply to beer. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. apply to wine. It wouldn't really in any way, um, and so it doesn't. Here's the other thing, by the way, this will make you feel a little better, sort yeah. of, um, uh, is that the influence of all of those words declines as the consumer gets older. And is that because we forget or because we decide <laughs> or is it because we just decide that eh, it's all just a bunch of hoo-ha? I th oh, let's let's I'm going to go with the latter. Um, OK. Yeah. Uh, but you know, in all of those studies, we it, become it was more each, cynical. Each group as each group. It, every word had less resonance with each group from, you know, uh, millennials to Gen Xers to boomers yep. uh, to what we they people consider mature. Now, those are the folks probably forgetting because the older they're boomer, older than us because yeah. they're mature. Yeah, God, well, <laughs> We're still this immature. is age wise. Paul, this is not <laughs> the mentality. Uh, all right. Well, immature as we may be, uh, we are going to come back in just a moment and answer some questions. This is Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Stay with us. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul, and we are about to take some questions. If you'd like to be one of those people that asks us a question, go to rickandpaulwine.com, all one word, Rick and Paul one, or you can find us on iTunes. Subscribe for free. Really easy. Just click on. Uh, you might want to know if you have not heard us before, and even if, if you've heard us before, you really <laughs> want to know really. what qualifies us to be answering questions and getting all hoo-ha-y about uh, handcrafted. Well, we're old. It's true. 
It's true. We're old, I, and I think so that's, we that's know enough. what those words mean, and we know that those words don't mean anything at all. Yes. Actually, Rick has written about this. You, you've, you've just heard him say um, that he's a journalist who's written about both beer and wine. Uh, wine commentator on Capital Public Radio, wrote The Barefoot Spirit, best-selling New York Times book about the wine business, and also has judged many wine competitions. That's true. I have one very old hamstring at the moment. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, <laughs> Paul, who is also old, a <laughs> respected industry pro. He answers questions on allexperts.com. He teaches at Napa Valley College, the Colonial Institute of America, around the world, occasionally on a cruise. Um, and uh, and the, the people who listen to him are uh, they're sometimes young. That's right. All right. Our first question is, comes from Dan Pinella. He is the owner of Oak Farm Vineyards in Lodi. Which, it, if you haven't been there, is a stunning place. It is a great winery. And, in fact, uh, it, it, this, this comes out of the fact that his Albarino, which uh-huh. you and I both like because we both judged this year, yep. was the State Fair's best-of-show white wine. Mm-hmm. And he says... Why do some wine competitions have platinum instead of double gold? And is, is there a difference between the two awards? It's a really good question. The answer is it's just it's how they want to do it. It depends on how the competition is run. Right. Now, um, for, let's just run through briefly that there are four basic awards at any competition. You get the and, – and what I tell my fellow judges is I only want to hear these words out of your mouth. I don't want to hear you talking outside of this. No metal, bronze, silver, gold, Right. But in every competition, it's not one judge who's judging the wines, as at the state right. fair where you and I judge together. There's four. You're in a at panel. least a four in that panel. There's four. There can be three. There can be five. Odd numbers often work better because it's sort of a tiebreaker. Now, one of the definitions of a double gold is not just that the the assembled scores of all of the judges added up to a gold medal. So Rick gave it a silver, I gave it a gold, and Matt gave it a gold. You add those scores together, it still averages it qualifies out to be gold. as gold, right? But if all three of us give it a gold, all have to give it a gold. Then it's called a double gold because not a single judge on the panel voted it to give it anything except a gold medal. Yeah, and and some places some places give it call it a platinum to try to make it sound better. You know, uh, and there's uh, there's you know the wine competition we just talked about best of show. You know, and lots of competitions right. have lots of categories. Yep. Um, but you know, so best of show is a really is that's pretty self-explanatory. They have a best white wine, a best red wine. Sometimes the best like the fair has best sparkling, best mm-hmm. pink, best right. um, best bargain wine. Uh, best dessert wine too, uh, and so that there's other things that sort of levels in between sometimes. Like there's a best of class, and right. everybody calls that differently. But it would in California we call it a best of California at the state fair. Right. So there would be the best Chardonnay would be the best of California Chardonnay. Right. right. And and then some have best of class of region, which is a much smaller one. Yeah. yeah. So then you start getting into well, there right. were two wines submitted from Lo, uh, from from Modoc County, and right. so one of them is better than the other. It's a best of class. That those get to be a little crazy, yes. but generally, best of class means that of all the wines in that category that got tasted, it was the one the judges liked the most. Now, it's interesting that sometimes the best of class isn't necessarily a gold medal. 
Uh, it, yes. Sometimes it can be a silver medal, but sometimes you also get a situation where you have six or eight gold medals, Napa Valley Cabernets, you have a bunch of gold medals. The one that finishes out on top of that is pretty darn good wine. As someone who has run the state fair competition a few years, um, I need to say that in state fair, that is not true. If the wine doesn't, if it is, there will be no best of class if, if there are gold no golds. Yeah. yeah. The theory being that you want whatever stands out to really stand out. Yep. And I need to put in a plug here that the Napa Valley College Pinot Noir where I teach, although I do not teach the winemaking classes, I teach other classes, um, at the San Francisco competition was best of class. Mm, there you um, go. Made by, you want handcrafted? You never saw so many hands on that wine because there were like 25 students yeah. who all had a hand. That's Get it, Rick? Had a hand. Grubby hand In making that is. wine, but at best of class. All right. Another question. This one is from Steve in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Why is there isn't there a standard length for corkscrews? Why are they all different? <laughs> is there one kind that's best? They're different because some people are just dumb and they give you a really short screw and then you can't get your cork out. That's true because right. because there are there's really sort of a standard really good corkscrew and everything else falls short. Yeah. But the corkscrew and we're going to get a little technical here, but the screw on a corkscrew should be an open helix. It should be a spiral. It shouldn't look like a, a an oversized wood screw with grooves coming up the outside. Right. It should be an open helix. The old trick Brother Timothy at the Christian Brothers taught me was you should be able to slide a toothpick right down the middle of a corkscrew, and there should be that space should be empty because the corkscrew is a helix. And you also want it longer because you want to be able to, if it, in a perfect world, is you should go all the way through the uh, through the cork through the cork yeah. and when you're opening some of the great wines that Rick serves every night at his house like classified growth Bordeaux those corks are frequently over two inches long so the little Swiss army knife has every possibility of going halfway in and pulling half of the cork out and leaving you very unhappy yeah and the other kind that I really like from the corks I mean there's all these other fancy pantsy uh, openers and we should actually talk about those sometimes we should have a corkscrew show yeah but the other is that we call the double hinged uh, and it's, so it basically Basically, you get, you know, the with the regular one, as you, you put it in, you get one pull. I'm, I'm demonstrating uh, physically <laughs> on radio because it's what we do. Yes. So it listens to this it as I pull too. with one hand. But actually, you can you can reset it so that as right. it, as that long pull starts to lose leverage, right. there's another another little right. step. And then you can, and those are great because yep. what you're not doing then is you're not pulling the cork at some weird angle and you're not or, risking or a Or using break. too much brute force. Now, the other possibility is the corkscrew that I have used for years and years that I like very very much is the two-pronged so-called ASO. Um, I've used those very successfully to open a lot of different wines. Uh, I don't use them right now because, frankly, uh, they're that you have to practice. But when I was open wines uh, for a winery and I was open a lot of bottles in a hurry, they actually are a pretty yeah. good solution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The one advantage is really easy to get the cork off the corkscrew in those two-pronged ones. It just pops off. Right. All right. We have a whole bunch of more questions. We will get to them a bit later in the show. But coming up, we need to get some horrible wine writing for oh, you. Oh, man. listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It is time for our regular attempt to bring you some really horrible wine writing because we think uh, everybody should suffer just a little bit. <laughs> In our really horrible wine writing feature, Paul, what have you got? I got a phrase that everybody uses way too much. The vintage of the century, the vintage of the decade, a 
uh, vintage, uh, unforgettable vintage, and it just means they had a pretty good year and they're pretty happy. With yeah. It. Well, I like when it was vintage of the century and it was 2003. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's uh, right. You only got 97 years, years to go. off, written on. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it is that thing. Everybody wants it to be spectacular. It's a marketing ploy on the one hand, but when when the critics start doing it, it's yeah, like, it's dear crazy. lordy, dear lordy. So what do you have? Mine comes from our friend Marcus Nigley. He's oh, yeah. the winemaker at Board Vineyards. And uh, by the way, Marcus told me that he, he has his crew on on the pad, listen to the show to help educate them, so that they can learn how to handcraft the wines. Yes, at Bora I, I, I think he, I think he, uh, he must have a really uneducated crew. On <laughs> all right, so his was he, something he found, and it, this is his winemaker's notes. Looking for legendary Sauvignon Blanc, Marlboro, New Zealand is the place to be. This wine fits the bill. Long days, cool nights with bright sunshine create a wine with exhilarating flavor and in-your-face attitude. But, of course, no description of what the wine might remotely taste like. In-your-face attitude sounds to me very much as if that wine is going to jump right out of the glass and spray itself all over my face. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Well, that's, that's— What did you, I do? That's if you use the wrong corkscrew. What, is what did happens I do? Is you yank that puppy that. out, and boom, it's everywhere. And it's, and it's everywhere. an in-your-face attitude. Yes, that is it. That is it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's, there's like those are all the cliches, and there's nothing in it that tells right. you. Although it does maybe bright sunshine. All right. You are listening to Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. Uh, Marcus, by the way, thank you very much. Uh, we it was appreciate an exhilarating that. question. It Marcus. was. It was. It was an in-your-face <laughs> question. This is Bob Talk with Rick and Paul. We have a whole lot more, including some history, when we come right back. Stay with us. Listening to a bottle talk with Rick and Paul. Oi, oi, oi! I it just feels like this this brilliant those noble they Ave are, Caesar. Yes, hail and well met. Exactly. Um, well, hail and well met. Let's hear let's hear it for some historic history moments. Hey, well, I'm going back to Caesar. All I'm right. going back to Pliny the Elder. Uh, the the great Roman statesman, admiral, scientist, uh, who described the most famous wine of Rome, which was called Falernian. Falernian. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, it is the only wine that takes light when a flame is applied to it. That was how he could tell whether it was true Falernian wine. Now, here's the really cool part about it, which is it's almost certainly not true. Because um, anything, the, the, where we get the expression proof, you know, 50 proof, 100 proof, 140 proof, where we get that expression is proof means that if you set a match to it, it catches on fire. And if it does consistently, that's 100 proof, 50% alcohol. 50% alcohol, right? So he, what, what Pliny the Elder is actually saying is that Flarinian was 50% alcohol, which there's uh, no I, way that could be because— I do not think so. No, because fermented wine never gets above about 16, maybe 17% alcohol. The Romans did not distill things. They were not creating a distillate. So, um, yeah, it's probably not natural. Probably not natural. Probably, and, and, and and I think that it's uh, it's we've got a little bit of tricksterness going on. I right? think mm-hmm. this is a clear example of someone handcrafting some marketing materials. I think that's I think that's what it was. <laughs> um, well, you know, there's uh, we're gonna go a little more of this manipulated, adulterated, counterfeited, kind of messed with wine and yes. marketing was back to Rome. And Pliny used to complain, by the way, speaking of Falernian. Mm-hmm. 
Pliny, uh, in this case, was complaining about the abundance of what he would call fraudulent Roman wine. And the reason was, well, he wouldn't call it Roman wine. He would just call it wine, fraudulent wine, or right? But, but the reason was uh, is, is that, uh, you know, it was so much, actually, it was so bad that even the nobles didn't know with, for sure whether their wine was what it was said to be. Mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. really, it revolves around Flarenian because it was, um, what made it so valuable was that it was actually kind of sweet. And it was Absolutely. rich, and the, the fruit yeah. came from warmer yeah. wear areas. And because well, and they actually picked the grapes and let the grapes sit in the sun to ripen after they'd been picked to concentrate the sugar. Right, and remember, the more sugar, the you know, the, the it's not going to all go in the fermentation. And sugar is actually a preservative, so right, you know, they weren't very good with managing wine getting too old too quickly. So it kept it from being sour, or if mm-hmm. it did get sour, there was some sugar in it still. Uh, but uh, you know, it was for for years and years. Even the poor and middle class Romans could get lots and lots of quote unquote Florian at at seemingly killer prices. prices. Yeah. Wow. So uh, Pliny thought maybe that the Falernian was not actually completely handcrafted. Maybe it wasn't all Falernian. <laughs> it was <laughs> yes. And here's a cool story. Nobody you, sued, however. Do you know how he died? Uh, I do. Uh, he was hit with a, a vodka bottle. <laughs> no, he was not hit by a vodka bottle. He was an, one of the world's great scientists as well. And as admiral of the Roman fleet, when Vesuvius started erupting, he insisted that a ship take him so that he could go closer and oh, watch the I eruption. Oh, that part. Yep. That was a bad move. And he eventually died. Yeah, well. Died yeah. doing science. So well, you got, okay. he, gets, he gets points. Yes. Which and and then Pliny the Younger came along and and they named a beer after him. No, that was Pliny. well. Now both of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is somewhat ironic because he wrote about wine. But and there you go. Uh, so we're, since we're talking about uh, you know uh, lawsuits and scientists uh, and 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 hoo ha and the wine and spirits world, I thought I'd bring you this report from an- Analytical Chemistry. As you See, know, Pliny the Elder would be proud of you, yes, Rick. Well, as you know, when I get up in the morning with my orange juice, that's what I drink. Analytical <laughs> Chemistry. <laughs> uh, it's, the, the writing is so brilliant. Um, actually, this is the team of researchers at UC Irvine. Hmm. These are guys that they like wine, so they they were into. They thought they'd try. And, try and they something. are appropriately equipped because, of course, the mascot is the anteater. They have a long nose. Ah, uh, I gotcha. I don't maybe I thought maybe anteaters liked wine. Um, so, but they come up with a test that can authenticate the age of these old wines by extracting water vapor molecules from the cork while it's still in the bottle. So they're measuring actually the age of the cork rather than the age of the wine. Well, no, because here's what they do. So, okay. so let you know, let's go backwards for a second too, just to talk about like wine fraud and things like that. You know, so the problem yes. is is that uh, we we have in the past talked about these sort of really great frauds with very expensive wines that turn out yes. to be fate. If anybody is buying those wines, they're not listening to us. they got better things That's to do. Right. But for the <laughs> Actually, rest of everybody, rest of us everybody here, has something better <laughs> well, to do. That's right. true. <laughs> that, there is that. <laughs> uh, but there is, according to the International Chamber of Commerce, and I bet most people didn't know that that existed. I just learned it. Um, is there's more than $1.7 trillion worth of counterfeit goods traded worldwide. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And wine is a piece of that, a big piece of that. And so everything from those very expensive old Bordeaux to even cheap knockoff Aussie Shiraz. You know, and that people, Do you uh, think someone's counterfeiting the show right now, right? I think the, I think we are totally a knockoff. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, are, we are counterfeiting the show. Yes. Yeah, yeah we are. Count, <laughs> We're still count, not getting paid enough for it. We are fake radio guys is what we are. <laughs> uh, uh, but the problem with testing for fake wine is really— got to drink it you in order drink to it. know. Right. So there goes your wine. Yeah. You lose either way. 
And so what often they do is they study the label and the bottle and the corks and the capsules and the right. look. And some, and some very funny and famous examples of that, of uh, frauds being detected because the chateau said, you know, we actually didn't make wine that year yes. and you just bought 12 bottles of it. Or, yeah. you yeah. know, it's funny that we've always printed the labels with the vintage in red and here it's black. I right. mean, there's some pretty obvious things that right. kind of pop out at times. And some of those ones that we talked about, some of the, the latter big frauds were very well done. Yes, um, very sophisticated. And, yeah, and, and so these guys, Dr. Simon Farney and Dr. Benjamin Fuller. They are the UC Davis Earth Science System Department researchers and wine lovers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what they figured out was, you know, the headspace, the group, the area between the uh, between the, the bottom cork of the cork and, cork and the top of the yeah, wine. that little bit of air in there. Yep. That yep. of course grows over time because there is some evaporation. Right. And what happens is the vapors evaporate up and eventually go through the cork. The cork is on a hundred percent seal. Okay, this is interesting because I know people in the cork industry who tell you that the wine that evaporates out of a bottle this way does not go through the cork, but in fact goes alongside the cork between the side of the cork and the neck of the bottle. In, in any case, it would still it would still connect to the cork. The cork would have some of the yeah. vapors on it, and so um, and so what they do is they. They managed to uh, use a vacuum to extract that gas and, and the liquids around the edges of the cork. Mm -hmm, and then they mm -hmm. refill it with inert gas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, and then they test for something called carbon-14. Of course. It's radioactive isotope. Yeah. It's, you know, the, uh, it's only 60 years old. And it, it varies in years based on how much you atomic can, temperature. Yeah, you can, it's carbon-14 dating is a pretty well-established. Yeah. And they talk about how difficult it is to find a carbon-14 atom. It's like finding one drop in water in 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Uh -huh. However, they were pretty good Actually, at this. Actually, if I had 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools, I could find a drop of water easy. Well, one they're... single specific <laughs> drop of water. It's always a smart outcome here. So what they did was they tested 32 wines. They got 23 of them right in terms yeah. of age, Okay, 70%. They said the problems are that there's carbon contamination in the cork, sometimes cork yep. wines, bacteria, yep. things yep. like that. So it's you know it's it's a way uh, uh -huh. for those of you buying hyper-expensive wines. How much do you wines. think it would cost to do this test on well, your $17 the, bottle of Australian the, Shiraz? Well, I don't think you need to worry about that. <laughs> I think if you get a fake $17 of Aussie Shiraz, just drink it and don't you worry just about drink it. It and that's right. However, if it's a $1,700 bottle, these guys might be worth talking yeah. to. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of authentic, and certain, uh, we have some, uh, well, we are not, but we have some questions that are. <laughs> so we are going to return to our listener questions. And by the way, if you'd like to ask us a question, uh, this is Ball Talk with Rick and Paul. The question place is rickandpaulwine.com. And don't forget, we are on iTunes. So here is a question from Kevin from Long Island. I saw the story that Kevin is talking about. Okay. This, is, this was a couple months ago. Yep. There's a story recently in a major newspaper that said, I'm, he said the paper, I'm just saying major, that said it was really hard to find Pinot Noir that was reasonably priced. And it said reasonably priced is under $40. Really? Where do they live on the planet money? What kind of Pinots are they talking about? How many people ever spend $40 on a bottle of wine in a store? I know, I know. A bottle of water costs 40 bucks in some restaurants. So he's talking about going to the store and spending that kind of money. $40 yeah. was uh, – I had the same reaction, I have to say, uh, Kevin. I thought I thought that too. Yeah, that I don't see the question there. Kevin's right. The newspaper's wrong. Yeah. Next question. Yeah. And and the and the question is, too, can you find Pinots that are cost less? Well, the the writer did find a couple of Pinots at $38 and, and called <laughs> them reasonable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these are good. These are good. In answer to Kevin's question, 
less than 1% of all the wine on the planet sells for over $40 a bottle. Right. It's probably half of that. So reasonably priced? To me, reasonably priced means that it's got to be less than the third, the, the, the 35% of wine that is more expensive. And that means reasonably priced for most people is $15 or under. Well, I took a survey. It was not a very professional survey. Well, I'm, I, coming from you, I'm shocked to hear that, well, Rick. My wife was talking to my sister-in-law, <laughs> so I asked them. <laughs> yeah, and they said that yeah, given this context, right, they would it would definitely have to be under twenty dollars, right, and they would really consider reasonably priced to be like fifteen bucks. You know, I do a survey every year in my marketing class that I teach at Napa Valley College, and I ask them how much do you have to pay for a serious bottle of wine. Now, serious to me, and there's a whole backstory behind that, but serious to me means not reasonably priced. In other words, if, if you wanted to spend money to get something that wasn't reasonable but really was a step beyond that, what would you have mm-hmm. to pay? And the average for the classes are on 25 30 mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're talking, I think, 20 and under is, is depending on what you normally buy, reasonably priced. Yeah, and, and, and the other half the answer is there's plenty of decent Pinot Noirs around 20 bucks. Yeah, the, you know, they're yes, better al- than decent. Although, you know. to the, the point that the Pinot writer is, is actually making is that Pinot Noir, as a grapevine, is more difficult to grow than most other vines. It produces a smaller crop than most other vines. And so, by definition, it's going to be a little more expensive because it simply is harder to get the grapes. Yes, it is going to be. And it is one of the wines where they probably do get uh, probably more reliable reward moving up in price than, you know, I'm not saying always. I'm not even saying it is something you can bet on, but but it's probably more consistently reliable reward in moving up in price in Pinot Noir than in most other mm-hmm. wines for, mm-hmm. for that reason alone. But okay. you can find some pretty, plenty of delicious. And I think the other part of that, and I, I want to harp on this for just a second because it annoys me, which is this idea that it's wine writers wait, like— Wait, wait. Matt, can you get the soapbox <laughs> in here, please? Uh, yes. <clears throat> Thank you for being here. Uh, <laughs> wine writers in particular, don't forget who you're writing to. It's not other people in the wine business. Yeah. Thank you very no much. Kidding. Thank you very much. No kidding. Yeah. And that's the thing. Is it's just it's forgetting that the average consumer like we've we've had these studies where forty bucks a bottle. Yeah. My my father in law lives in a relatively nice he's a retired uh, GP physician, lives in a nice sort of gated community in the East Bay, retired taking life easy, but once a month the people in this community get together, and there are people who have enough money, they can buy the wines they want to buy, and they always they have a wine tasting, and everybody's supposed to bring a bottle, and there's a $20 price cap on the bottles they can bring, because sure. that's the sure. reasonable price. Sure, and it is, it's where people live, and we've see, we've done stories about being people, the vast majority of people buy these, and we have numbers. Yep. That, so, yes, yep. in other words, uh, you, Kevin, you, you, you nailed it. The, uh, there's that, no question that, there, that, Kevin. That, that did come from the planet money. <laughs> All right. This one is from Howard in Placerville. Hmm. There's a sommelier at a restaurant near us we really like. He's a good guy, and he makes it fun, especially since we don't really know much about wine, except mm-hmm. he's always pushing wines he says have really good acidity. Why would we want that? You know, we talked about in in, in previous that, iterations, we yeah. talked about how handcrafted is the word that everybody wants to see on a bottle of wine. Uh, acidity you know, is the one they don't, right? That's the word that if people see acidity on a bottle of wine, they run screaming from the room. Yeah. 
And all it means is that, the again, I go back to the apple analogy, the wine is a little crisper. It may not be as soft and round. It probably isn't as good to drink on its own, but it's probably a lot better when you're sitting down and biting into that calamari or some of those other things. Uh, wines with acidity tend to match better with food. Wines with lower acidity tend to be better uh, as a cocktail drunk on their own, but maybe not match so well with food. Yeah, and, and this is a, a metaphor I use a lot, which is, the, uh, or an analogy actually, um, is orange juice versus orange Kool-Aid. Hmm. You know, it's the little bit, you know, the reason why pulp. orange juice tastes terrible. Acidity I, is pulp? Well, no, it's just, it's, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. You know, when you drink orange juice after brushing your teeth, the sweetness yes, and the, it does. You know, it's and that, good morning. That's because there's some acid in there. You don't really notice that it's got acid. Right. Orange juice actually tastes pretty darn sweet. Right. But what it does is it tastes fresh because of that. So it, yes. uh, even though that is another word that people hate to see on a label, right. so it makes the wine yeah. fresh and it's true in whites and it's and true you know in reds. And what you're going to do now is all the makers of Kool-Aid are going to go in there and they're going to start adding a little more acidity yeah. to the Kool-Aid yeah. and they're going to sell a, a special vintage, a vintage of the century Kool-Aid. Yeah, I have to call it Rick and Paul Kool-Aid. That's right, and it'll have slightly higher acidity. <laughs> Goes better with that tuna melt sandwich you're having for lunch. Yeah. So Howard, that's what he's, he's saying, you know, And I, but it sounds like your psalm also doesn't push on you, so that's that's a good thing, too. But give it a try sometime and see if you like it. It's kind of important to know that, too, if you decide you don't like those wines. To be able to tell him. Yeah. So, In you fact, know, it would be fun if he's got two taste. wines by the glass to ask him to suggest one that what he dis describes has good acidity yes. and maybe one that doesn't and ask him to pour the two wines so that you can get a sense of that because you're in a great position to learn something and in the meantime Placerville that's wine country there's some yeah. wineries up there you're, it sounds like you're in a perfect place to have some fun with all this yeah 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 all right, this was about another one about a, a psalm. Yeah, this is from Angela from Napa. Mm. She says, we were at a pretty nice place in, in the psalm, and she seemed like a very nice person. Brought us the wrong wine. We didn't notice until we had a glass, and we're pouring more. <laughs> so, yeah. Sounds like you, Paul. <laughs> I'll get to that in a second. It yeah, was the a difference is that <laughs> if they hadn't noticed at all, that would sound like you, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, there was—we're going to get to yours in a sec, though. Okay. You're right. It was a cab, and we ordered a Merlot. Yep. It was fine, but what should we do? We just shut up and slinked out because we felt stupid for not noticing. All right, so first things first is they weren't stupid. Second, I just want to say because Paul had a, a mishap once when yeah. he ordered a— In front of a large group of people, <laughs> I ordered a white wine, and the sommelier <laughs> brought a bottle of red wine from the same producer, and I wasn't paying attention. I was talking away like I normally did, and I looked over at the label, and I said, yep, that's the wine I ordered. And my wife raised her hand, and it said, excuse me, honey, but didn't you order a white wine, not a red wine to start with? So so see, Angela, even the best among us can do it, and so can Paul. <laughs> and so can Paul. That's right. But um, So first off, you should not feel stupid about no. that. It is not your responsibility. Right. And at the same time, I can tell you any number of times where I can, I can point to very, very qualified international wine judges who have tasted a wine and wouldn't be able to tell you whether it was a Merlot or a Cabernet. So don't feel bad yeah, about that. Yeah, right, right, now, right. Here's, here's the question I would raise. I'll bet, given wine pricing the way it is, I'll bet that the Merlot was less expensive than the Cabernet. And I, I would encourage you, Angela, to at least say that when the sommelier comes back, hey, you know, I just want to... We didn't even notice this until just now, but actually we ordered the Merlot and you brought us the Cab. The worst that happens is that the sommelier says, I'm really sorry. And my guess is the sommelier says, 
will sell you the cab for the same price they as almost Demero. have to they especially it sounds like you said very nice ca- sommelier yes. yeah. yeah and so it, it, there's really nothing wrong with that and you know i mean we, we say this all the time here about um about this subject and even though we say it all the time we're actually right which is that it is not the customer's responsibility for to get things right in a, in a restaurant or right. a wine shop. It's right. the person who's they're the professional, and, well, and if you make a mistake in there because they made a mistake, this it's not on you. Think of it as ordering dinner, and you order something, and they, you order the pork stew, and they bring you something, and you eat three or four or five bites, and you say, you know. I don't think this is pork. This is, looks, looks like a fish to me. And you talk to your wife, and she says, that's funny because I ordered the lamb, and it turns out you got the wrong plates or something. And Or or you, you in fact, your wife says, well, I actually got the lamb, and you've got the same dish as I do. And would you call the waiter over and say, hey, I'm sorry, I ordered the pork, and it looks like you brought me the lamb? You probably would. Same situation. Right. In fact, the same situation, I mean, as silly as it seems, of course we do sometimes get a bite or two into it without thinking, oh, it could be crazy. You order the steak and you get a chicken. You probably remember that. But there are it's things. It's a very, yeah. very small steak. It's a very small cow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. In a chicken sauce. <laughs> chicken sauce. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. We, we're having fun here at the Rick and Paul show. <laughs> All right. This next one is p- from Patricia. Oh, you're going for more of this stuff. We are. Okay. Um, this is a good one, too. Uh, we, we've talked about this. We talked a little about this earlier. How can wine judges taste all those wines? Don't they get drunk? Are they really still accurate at the end of the day? Well, uh no and no. <laughs> right. There. Yeah. 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 Um, the, the answer is, first of all, nobody swallows this stuff. Right. We, we spit constantly. You're spitting. You're rinsing your mouth with water every four or five wines to try to maintain some sort of balance in your mouth. The most competitions provide a selection of treats for your mouth that aren't particularly strongly flavored, but everything from olives to toasted bread to roast beef. Roast beef is my favorite for Amy Red. It really red helps. Wines. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're, it's, it's, it's a good question, Patricia, because actually, to me, the hardest part of being a wine judge is not tasting the wines. The hardest part of being a wine judge is forcing myself to continually try to maintain my palate's calibration so yes. that I can judge the wine. And that's the second part of that question, which is, are, are they really still accurate at the end of the day? That is a really tough question. You know, I mean, on the one hand, especially for these big competitions, the, these are these are pros. I mean, they, they may not get paid for it, but they, well, they are getting a little bit. But they are pros. They've been at it for a long time. And like anything else that when you've done a long time, you sort of calibrate your exhaustion into it but i do, do i do remember getting through a couple of flights of the pinos i uh, we had a f- three flights of pinos uh this year and and they n- the last flight did not taste good and so we all realized that we had just the acid had sort of worn us out, out. Yep. we all without finishing we like went back walked away drank yep. some water came back five minutes later yep. Yep. And, they, and they taste entirely well and then the other thing is many competitions uh, most competitions design your tasting day right so that you're getting refreshed as you go along. You may start with one kind of wine, move to another. It used to be that you always started with bubbly, then whites, then reds. Now there's uh, uh, more of a tradition yeah. that you start with the reds early in the morning, and then after lunch where you're a little more tired, you get wines that aren't quite as exhausting to taste, which are the white wines. Exactly right, yeah. But, you know, it's it's like 
it's like facing a, a, a big league pitcher. Uh, if you're facing fastballs over and over and over again, it really gets to the point where you're just not catching up to them anymore. Whereas the giving different flights of wines sort of keeps you on your toes and keeps your mind open to what's in the glass. Yeah, and as somebody who's run some of these competitions, um, I got to tell you that the first thing we think about as we start to flight the wines is we think about the order and how to keep people fresh and where do we yep. put the breaks and we yep. don't want too much of any one thing and how do we get them to taste. So there's a little all of that going along, going around, but it is actually a pretty pretty uh, decent question. It works. Yep. It's a good question and we, we have a solution. Yeah. All right. Uh, enough of that for questions. We don't want to be able to get another one that we can't answer. But if you'd like to try, get us one that we can't answer or <laughs> one that we can, go to rickandpaulwine.com. All one word, Rick and Paul Wine. You are listening to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Coming up, we have a food and wine pairing for you. Stay with us. to Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. It is time for our food pairing, and this is a hearty one, one of my faves. Love this stuff. Meatloaf. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a different, I have an interesting philosophy about this, Rick, because what I'm going to tell you is um, I have a philosophy, you know, the old red wine with red meat, white wine with white meat, red with meat, white with fish sort of thing. My philosophy is the longer the meat is cooked, the older the wine should be. And in meatloaf, Mm. which is often kind of like a meat Mm. stew, so even though this is often considered Mm. to be comfort food and relatively inexpensive, I like pulling out some of the older bottles in my wine cellar and drinking them with meatloaf. Older red wines, older Cabernets, older Merlots, pretty good stuff, and they go really nicely with this. I'll tell you what, I like meatloaf besides the fact that it tastes good. Yeah. It goes with so many red wines. Uh huh. It's like you're happy. I feel like a wine, I feel like a red. And meatloaf is the thing because it can take – it can even take a relatively bright Pinot Noir, but I agree with you. You're kind of in the mood for something sort of earthy and not giant yeah. fruit and, and it's, yeah, yeah. it's you know, but it could – but a big big round Zin would go with that too, yeah. you know. Yeah. There's, yeah. So, so it but is, if you've got a bottle in there you've been saving and you think meatloaf maybe is your thing. meatloaf is a thing. Frankly, it's uh, – there's that – you know, we got that question, when do I open that bottle? Meatloaf, meatloaf night. night. That's it. All right. <laughs> so think of us as meatloaf. We're your happy night. This, that's it for another round of Bottle Talk with Rick and Paul. Our engineer is Matt Bassini. Thank you, Matt. Thanks to Capital Public Radio for the studio use. If you'd like to ask us a question that we can answer or not, go to rickpaulwine.com. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes and subscribe for free. If you learned anything today, we hope it's if you don't want to get sued, don't call yourself handcrafted. I'm Rick Cushman. I'm Paul Wagner. And remember, the best wines you drink are with friends. Or with us. Especially us. Especially us.